This is Hilchos Shabbos with Rabbi Moshe Schnurb. 101.9 Chai FM. This is Soul to Soul on a Friday afternoon here in Johannesburg in a beautiful, almost a summer's day here in Johannesburg. A very warm welcome to all of our radio family. Thank you for taking time to join us today on our program. And today, indeed, we have a very, very special program, a very, very, uh, an opportunity that we don't often get very often on our show is to have a studio guest. And today it's, in fact, a very, very uh, prominent guest. It's uh, Rabbi Dr. Avram Steinberg, who is, it's a long, long CV. I'm not going to go through all, but uh, primarily he is the uh, head of medical ethics at Sharit Tzedek Hospital in in Jerusalem and involved in many, many, many interesting and kind of a cutting edge type of uh, issues in the medical world today. And hopefully over the next few minutes, we'll have a little bit of a chance to discuss and unpack maybe uh, just a few, a few of them. Rabbi Steinberg, a warm welcome to Chai FM. Thank you. Thank you for making time and uh, joining us. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. So let's, let's kind of start from the from one end and, and go to the other. Uh, we know that uh, besides all of Rav Steinberg's uh, medical work, you are involved in an incredible endeavor called the uh, Encyclopedia Talmudit, which which is something that uh, I think many of us who are involved in in learning and and uh, do often research in, in in the areas of Torah have used the book extensively. Maybe start by telling us a little bit about about this project, where it started, and where it's where it's going. Hopefully, Bezos Hashem. Yes, thank you. So, the Talmudic Encyclopedia. The concept is that uh, every entry deals with a halachic concept that is mentioned in the Talmud, with all its ramifications throughout the generations from the Talmud to current years which includes the Geoinim, the Rishoinim, the Achoinim, and even current major poskim, so that we uh, try to present the principles of the entry of the concept, as well as all the details that are included in it, with hundreds and sometimes even thousands of references per uh, concept. Now, the whole story starts during World War II, when of Meir Barilan, the youngest son of the Netziv from Volozhin, living in Jerusalem, heard the terrible uh, news that came from Europe. Europe was then the center for Torah learning, and the fear that the Abonim in, in Eretz Israel at the time was that not only Shalom, the Jews will be uh, destroyed, but also the whole Torah world will disappear. So they felt a commitment to do what they can in Eretz Yisrael where they were still safe. And the concept came up that one should gather everything known on halachic concepts in the Talmud throughout the generations in a very concise manner so that it will be preserved for posterity and even if you don't have the actual Rashba or Noida Biuda, you know what they said on this particular subject. He then recruited Rabbi Zevin, who was uh, one of the most outstanding Talmud HaChomim, not only in his generation, but in many later generations. He was an extremely 
Boki in Shas, and one of his attributes, which was very unique to him, was the style of writing, which he can capsulate a whole idea in a short sentence. So, for instance, if the Rashba on the issue uh, spends uh, two, three pages, he would summarize it in one sentence, which will say how the Rashba viewed this particular issue in a clear way. He then went on and uh, identified 2,500 names of entries that will be potentially the body of the Talmudic Encyclopedia. It took him about two years to compose it, and it's really a genius achievement because to this day, 70 years later, we still use his list with very little uh, changes Sometimes there was an omission of one or two of the entries. Sometimes we think that an entry that he identified should be just a chapter in another entry, but basically 2,500 entries are the basis of the Talmud Encyclopedia. Over the 70 years, many volumes have been published. According to our calculation, over one million copies were sold in the Jewish world, there's hardly any Bismedrish or, or synagogue that doesn't have some of the volumes, and certainly many private homes and yeshivas and so on. But there were ups and downs during those years, both from the writing uh, achievements and par- particularly the financial uh, support for it. I am heading now the Talmud Encyclopedia for about 10 years, there, were, there has been uh, many changes in the way the Talmud Encyclopedia works in order to speed up the process so that we can really f- finish it. And we were lucky to receive a very uh, large donation from uh, Mr. Dorf Friedberg of Toronto, a very uh, philanthropic person, very modest. I'm sure many of the listeners now didn't even hear his name, but he is really a huge contributor to Torah issues. And with his contribution and with the government contribution and with donations from all over the world, we are now proceeding in a pace which we took upon ourselves to finish the entire project by the year 2024, namely from now about six years to go. That is close to impossible because... The next volume that Yom Hashem will come out uh, before the Chagim will be number 41, dealing with entries at the beginning of the letter Mem, so that we have still a long way to go to finish all the entries at a lot of time. But because of, as I said, uh, many uh, strategic changes in the way we write, the pace is really uh, going much, much faster and indeed, we hope that we'll be able to complete it uh, at the time. Just one more uh, sentence to add. The Talmudic Encyclopedia, as uh, not many works uh, can claim it, is acceptable by all sects of the Jewish uh, spectrum of orthodoxy, from the most Haredi to the most liberal. Everyone who really wants to know apolitically position of halacha, knows that the Talmud Encyclopedia is the place where they can find answers 
to what they are looking for. Maybe just for our listeners may not have an idea of how one even approaches such a project. Maybe the rope would just spend a minute or two. How, how does one do it? What, what kind of a, what kind of a team is involved? What, what are they doing on a day-to-day basis to be able to facilitate the writing of such a incredible, incredible kind of, kind of work? Thank you for this question. I think it's really important for people who are interested in the, in this project to know about. So now we have 50 people who are working in various stages of writing the Talmud Encyclopedia. Some are full-time, some are part-time. And they are divided into six groups. Each group is headed by an editor who at least is already 15 years working in Talmud Encyclopedia. There are four to five younger uh, people who are part of this uh, group. There is a reviewer in the group. And the way it works is the following. We uh, assign a certain entry to one of the younger writers. He is expected to organize the material by uh, titles, by subtitles, by chapters, and gather everything that was ever written on this topic and decide what of what was written is relevant for the principle of the entry of the Talmud Encyclopedia and what is either irrelevant or much later written where already previous writers have discussed it. Once he did this programming, he starts writing under the guidance of the editor of the group, and they together complete the entry, and then the editor goes over it and makes sure that things are correct, that there are no mistakes, and they are understandable, and they include everything that is needed. Then it goes to the editor-in-chief, which at the moment is uh, Rabbi Meir Shmulevitz, the youngest son of Abchaim Shmulevitz of the Rosh Hashiva of Mir, and he really a genius uh, head. He goes over the entire uh, entry and usually has many remarks of uh, things to be corrected. That is being corrected. After that, Rabbi Zalman Goldberg, who is the, heading the whole project, goes over it, and again, there are issues that he raises, sometimes I raise issues. Once it's all corrected and finished, it goes to a linguistic editorial who makes sure that the style is uniform by all writers. And one more important aspect of his uh, review, he is not involved in the whole process of writing the entry. So he is an individual that has bought let's say, the Talmud Encyclopedia, and is reading it. And many times he draws attention to the editor of the group that maybe the sentence written is correct, but I don't understand it. Because someone who is involved deeply writes something that he thinks it's okay, but really the one who comes from outside and not so deeply involved doesn't understand. So they have to change the style so that it will be understandable to an average reader who wants the information and wants to understand it. Sure. Truly an outstanding project. We're going to come back and carry on with our interview in a minute. This is 101.9 High FM on the greatest radio station in all of Africa. This is Hilchos Shabbos with Rabbi Moshe Schnurb. 101.9 High FM. This is Soul to Soul on Erev Shabbos, Kodesh, Pashas, 
Kisetse, the important times you need to know for this week. Uh, candle lighting today is no later than 5.34, 26 minutes before 6 o'clock. And Shabbos Kodesh ends tomorrow evening at uh, 24 minutes past past 6. Uh, this week is, as I said, Pashas Kisetse. The Haftorah is the double of Rania Kora and Aniyasara that would have been done over two weeks, but... Uh, because of Rosh Chodesh, we do it all together. We are sitting here to graced in our studio with the presence of Rabbi Avram Steinberg, head of medical ethics at Charitetic Medical Center. And we are, we have just discussed his amazing project that he's involved in called the Talmudica, Talmudica Encyclopedia. Let's talk now maybe to s- turn to some of the medical issues. Obviously, uh, uh Charitetic and, and the Israeli medical scene is, is the forefront, is, is, uh that area where where so many of the of the cutting edge uh uh questions and 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 discussions are taking place because obviously the the technology and the situations that that come up and of course we're dealing with Baruch Hashem and Medina Israel we're dealing with situation of uh, of Achenu uh, Israel perhaps next time we tell us some of the things that that are, are really interesting and are really intriguing that our, our listeners might enjoy kind of sinking their teeth into and, and hearing a little bit about. Okay, so the issues that uh, a physician might be involved in that has to do with halacha are many, many uh, issues. Some are classic issues with twists because of modernity, such as how do you treat a patient on Shabbos, how do you operate as a as an observant Jewish physician dealing with issues on Shabbos? How do you come to the hospital? What can you do immediately? What can you postpone? Can you change things in order to make it less severe of a prohibition? Many, many issues that are classic issues have been with us uh, since uh, the Torah was given to us. But there are modern issues that require adjustments uh, between the halacha and the medical treatment. Uh, similarly, issues of Yom Kippur, who can fast, who cannot fast, how do you make a decision, can you eat uh, only partly, b'shiurim, or can you eat uh, the whole meal because of your m- medical situation. Again, things that have been with us for many years, but modern medicine has presented new issues. So this is on the classic side. However, the more exciting part of uh, medical ethics from a Jewish point of view as well as from a medical, ethical, secular point of view are the new inventions both in the beginning of life and in end of life which uh, require decisions, what is permissible and if permissible, how to do it, very complicated issues. So let me start with one example regarding beginning of life. Obviously, every mother, every parent wants the child to be a healthy child. There are situations where the parents are carrying a genetic mutation that will cause in certain percentages, depending on the type of the mutation of the genetic disease, will carry a significant and a serious disease, sometimes even a little disease. How can we avoid the birth of a child to a couple that has genetic problems known to them? 
Up to recently, up to a few, two, three decades ago, the only option was to become pregnant a chance to do testings, genetic testings of the fetus, either by amniocentesis or by uh, villi sampling, and test the fluid for the genetic material. And if the genetic material is found to be positive, it means that this particular fetus will suffer from a serious disease. And then we come to the major question, is abortion under such conditions permissible or not? That is a big dispute, and I won't go into it at the moment. However, today, we can avoid this problem and yet have healthy children. That is called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which is done in the following way. The couple, although fertile and they can uh, conceive in a natural way, are not doing it that way, but they are doing it in an in vitro fertilization, an IVF uh, procedure, which means that we obtain sperm from the husband and eggs from the wife, and we combine them in the laboratory so that they become fused and the process starts of divisions until, obviously, if in uterus, a child will be born. At a stage of four to eight cells in the lab, we take out one cell of those existing and we test in this particular cell whether or not it includes the gene for the disease. If it is found in this one cell, it obviously exists also in the rest of the cells, and if we'll implant these cells into the mother, the child will be 100% a sick child. On the other hand, if this cell doesn't have the genetic mutation for the disease, we can assure the mother 100% that if we'll implant the fertilized egg, this fetus will be a healthy child. And since the genetic material is transmitted either into 25% or 50% of the fertilized eggs, there's always a chance that some of the fertilized eggs will be healthy eggs, and once we identify which of them is healthy, we can implant it and assure a healthy child. This is called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. The challenge was whether halachically this whole process is permissible. I had the fortune to uh, present the whole issue when it just appeared to Avel Yashiv Zatzal, and he passed clearly that this process is entirely permissible, provided it is done for serious diseases, and therefore it is not permissible for minor things. For instance, with this process, we can choose the gender. We can, if a couple wants a baby boy because they have two girls, we can do this PGD process and choose the fertilized egg that will be a boy. That will not be permissible. Or, for the same sake, we can choose the color of the eye of the child. The parents want a blue-eyed child. This is genetically determined. We can look for the gene and implant only fertilized eggs that will produce blue-eyed children, that, again, will not be permissible. But if we want to avoid Tay-Sachs or cystic fibrosis or neurofibromatosis or many, many other severe genetic diseases, that has become now 
the way to avoid the birth of a sick child. It doesn't involve the abortion issue. And as I said, without, uh, because the limited time doesn't permit to go into the details, but certainly Abel Yashiv uh, found it to be perfectly okay halachically. And we in Sharet Tzedek, as mentioned, I worked there, have a unit. We have done so far over 1,000 couples with severe genetic diseases with zero mistakes, meaning none of those children was born with a disease. So that is one example where cottage uh, technology had to be uh, cleared with the major post scheme, and once it's permissible, we can use it. Okay. Um, if maybe if we could just go back one second, and uh, often the people on, uh, would like to talk about the concept of couples who may not be able to, uh, in a normal way, conceive a, a, a child and often want to know what is halachically permissible, what are the different avenues that uh, we have available today that are that are successful and also comply with the opinions of most of the of the great of the great boy scheme. Okay, so if we are talking about infertile couples, then the process the, to help them to have a child is either an IVF between the two of them, namely let's say that the husband has a very low count of sperm but he still has some sperm so naturally the, his wife will not conceive but we can obtain his sperm, obtain her egg, fertilize it outside of the womb and implant the fertilized egg into the mother and then the couple can have their child which is genetically theirs and physiologically theirs and that has been uh, approved by almost all poskim, certainly currently all poskim agree that uh, this pro- pros- process between husband and wife is permissible. It becomes more complicated when either the wife or the husband have no way to conceive so that one side can give what is needed for conception, but the other side needs a donor. And the donor can be either a sperm donor if the husband has no sperm altogether or an egg donor or a surrogate mother carrying the pregnancy if the wife either doesn't have eggs or doesn't have an ovary. And here things become much more complicated and and very uh, debatable what processes can be permissible. So if we talk about sperm donors, if it is a, a Gentile sperm donor, then obviously the husband is not the father of the child because his sperm didn't contribute anything. The mother will be, the, the wife will be the mother because she will conceive with the sperm donation. The egg is hers and the uterus is hers, so she will be the mother. And in this way, uh, the child will be born as a Jewish child because the mother is Jewish and as someone who doesn't have a father. If the sperm donor is a Jewish sperm donor, we run into two complications. One is probably the donor wasn't allowed to emit sperm for this process, but if he did so, 
the question will be if he is not identifiable in, and he donated too many a couples his sperm, there is a concept in, in Gemara talking about Shema Yisa Achet Achoto for fear that a brother will marry a sister. And since fatherhood is totally dependent on the sperm donor, so the Jewish sperm donor, although he's outside the couple and unknown, he is the father. And if he did it for a hundred couples, so we have a hundred children who are brothers through this father, and by chance they may meet and marry, and then their children will be mamzerim because it's a brother and a sister marriage. That is a huge problem and has to be resolved one way or the other. One way to do it is to have a central registry and to make sure that the father is either identifiable totally or at least partially, and whenever a couple comes to a rabbi to be married, and one of them was, or the two of them were products of sperm donors, we have to look for the sperm donor to make sure it's not the same man for the two of them. On the mother's side, if she doesn't have a womb and she uses a surrogate woman that will carry the pregnancy, so genetically the egg comes from her and the sperm from her husband, so genetically it's their child, but the pregnancy and the delivery was done by a different mother, by a different woman. And here comes the very complicated and as yet unresolved halachi question, who is the mother? How do you define motherhood? Is a mother only a woman who does her two functions? She, she gives the egg, which is the genetic material, and she carries the pregnancy and delivers. And if you divide between two women, neither is a mother, because neither did the whole gamut of what motherhood constitutes of. Or, which is the position of most post-scheme, we can define a mother by one or the other way, but the question is, which is the right way? So some hold that all depends on the genetic material, and therefore the egg donor is the mother, and the carrying mother is irrelevant. Others hold the opposite, that the pregnancy and delivery constitutes motherhood, and the genetic material is irrelevant. But since there are not enough sources to decide one way or the other, therefore the major poskim, Abshlom Zaman Oyerbach, Avil Yashiv, and many others, uh, came to the conclusion that we can't solve this question and we don't know who the mother is, and therefore we have to look at the two women as mothers lechumra, which means that if either of the two mothers is a non-Jewish mother, then the child will need a giur lechumra. Neither of them can marry a sibling of either of the women because maybe she is the mother or maybe she is the mother. Neither offspring can inherit any of the mothers because maybe she is not his mother. And so on, many halachic issues that come up because of this problem of defining motherhood which was created only by modern technology. Hmm. Very interesting. While we're just on the subject, maybe just uh, uh, the rabbi speak for a moment. If we're talking about a situation, please God, of, of a healthy pregnancy, 
what what is what is the thinking generally about genetic testing where we not where we necessarily suspect a uh, a, a a disease what what is the opinion of just uh testing to find out whether there might possibly be something what is the right if if we talk about a healthy couple that there's really a priori no suspicion for any genetic problem in this child there is no uh, no no one would allow to do testings and looking for trouble where the statistics are very low. By the way, there are uh, problems with uh, doing the testing because about half percent to, to a percent of women who undergo amniocentesis abort their fetus, and therefore if the child is not suspected at all to be sick, there is no reason to do the testing and actually, even from a medical, pure medical point of view, that would be unadvisable. Mm. Okay, that's very interesting. Uh, we're going to go now for a, a break, and then we're going to come back and discuss maybe some issues at the other end of of life. Please stay tuned. Don't run I'm sure you're finding this as fascinating as I am. This is 101.9 High FM. This is Hilchos Shabbos with Rabbi Moshe Schnurb. 101.9 High FM. This is Soul to Soul on a Friday afternoon, and we are here in the midst of a very, very interesting discussion with Rabbi Dr. Avram Steinberg, uh, medical ethicist director at Sharet Tzedek Hospital in in Yerushalayim. Into area, an entire long list of many things that uh, that that he does, and we just spent the last segment dealing some of the issues around the the beginning of. Uh, of, of life. Perhaps let's fast forward Bezal Hashem 120 years plus, uh, plus 15% VAT and, uh, maybe let's talk about some of the challenges, some of the medical and halachic issues that face physicians and face families as, as one gets into the golden years and in, in, into the time where we, uh, contemplate and, and, uh, unfortunately look forward to the, to the end of life and, and and how do we make that as as a uh, as clear cut and as and as pleasant an experience for for all all concerned? Okay, so we have to distinguish between two issues in in end of life situation. One is the end of life process where the patient is by all means alive, but he is suffering and is going to die from a disease that is known and cannot be helped anymore. And the next step is, how do we define the moment of death once everything stopped, and uh, what are the signs and symptoms that we can rely on? So let me talk about the first part, and that is the process of dying. So halachically, we define a dying patient as a chayesho, which means that he has... Uh, chances to uh, expectation to live a short period of time because he has an illness or a situation where there is no cure to it and no matter what we will do, he will die within a short period of time. The halachic dilemma is how do you define this short period of time? How much time is a short period of time? Obviously, we know that everyone dies at uh, some point and everyone has only chayesho. No one is expected to be immortal. However, halacha recognizes that if one 
according to most poskim, if one has an expectation to live less than one year, he is defined as a chayeshor, and the halachas concern, concerning such a patient are different than for those who are expected to live a year or longer. Not everyone agrees with this definition, but the major problem is that medically speaking, there's hardly any situation where we can predict a year. That is too much for our prognostic tools, and we can't define it. We in Israel defined the Chayeshor situation as half a year. So it certainly falls within the halachic definition of Chayeshor, but it is a time period that in many diseases there are prognostic signs that we can predict that he will not survive more than six months. So if we talk about such a person, there is no obligation, according to most poskim, to do, quote-unquote, everything possible to prolong every minute of life. So, for instance, if we know that he's going to die within half a year and he now needs uh, intubation and resuscitation, one is allowed to withhold this procedure and HaKadosh Baruch Hu will do what he decided to do. The same holds true for other such interventions, such as dialysis, chemotherapy, and many other treatments that pertain to the fact that the person is dying, and they may be helpful to prolong life by a few days or weeks, but not beyond the six-month limit, and therefore there is no obligation to introduce it. However, there is an obligation to feed and to give fluid to such a person because by not giving him sustenance rather than treatment, as we discussed earlier, that is a form of committing suicide because everyone needs food and fluid, and if he won't get it, he will die, whereas not everyone needs a respirator or a dialysis machine. So there is a clear distinction by halacha between these processes. Another distinction, which is unique to the halachic approach and not well accepted by the secular uh, laws and, and ethics, is a distinction between withholding and withdrawing, meaning in halachic terms between kumvasei and sheveyaltasei. So, for instance, if we take one of the examples I cited earlier, if a patient needs a respirator but he's not yet on the respirator, we are allowed to withhold putting him on a respirator. But once he is on a respirator, we are not allowed to withdraw the respirator because here we are doing an act that causes the patient to die. We are not allowed to do an act that leads to killing. Whereas we are allowed in this specific parameters of Chayesha to withhold treatment, it's not our obligation to provide every treatment when we feel that there is no chance that it will be helpful. This, however, has to be qualified because the prohibition to withdraw is only for treatments that are continuous, such as a respirator. So it's clear that if the patient needs a respirator, he needs it 24-7, and if we stop it at some point, we cause him to die. Whereas other treatments that are by nature intermittent, they come by units, for instance, dialysis. No one is continuously, or hardly anyone is continuously 
on a dialysis machine. They get it for four hours, and after two days, another four hours. So Halacha views each unit as a new decision. And hence, while he is on the dialysis, is we are not allowed to stop it, but once we finished it, we can take a decision to withhold the next unit of treatment. So that is a clear uh, distinction between different types of treatments. Another point which we are often asked is pain relief or palliative care. The fear of many people, lay people, is that palliative care hastens death because you give him morphine in order for him not to have pain, and morphine may cause respiratory depression, and he may die because of the morphine. That is a halachic mistake. All poskim agree that the treatment of pain in end of life is a treatment like for any other disease that has some complications, but in most cases the complications don't exist, and that disease which is called pain, which is terrible in those end-of-life situations, must be treated according to uh, palliative standards, which in most cases do not hasten death, and therefore not only are allowed, but should be uh, provided. Thank you very, very much. We're going to come back with our final segment in a moment. Please don't run away yet. This is 101.9 High FM, Soul to Soul. This is Hilchos Shabbos with Rabbi Moshe Schnurb. 101.9 Chai FM, this is Soul to Soul on Erev Shabbos afternoon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for us. I'm sure you are enjoying this, this discussion with Rav, Dr. Avram Steinberg. And uh, so we've spoken quite a lot about the the time of life and and uh, some of the issues around around uh, end end of life. I'd like to raise sort of a, a, a issue that's quite uh, close to me, quite personally, and that is the issue of of transplants. Uh, what are some of the 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 issues that come up? What are some of the halachic uh, uh, opinions in terms of Transplants, and obviously we're talking about, you know, heart, lungs, and kidneys, and maybe some of the uh, less sort of life-threatening type things also. Okay, so again, this is a huge topic, and let me uh, just point out a few issues. First of all, we have to distinguish between a donor who is still alive and yet donates parts of his body, and a donor that is dead and he can donate many more organs, including the most vital organs that you mentioned. So if it is a live donor, it is permissible, not obligatory, but it's permissible for a person who is alive to give parts of his body that will not risk his own life, but may save the life of someone else. I'm sure that many, many of our listeners have donated blood, for instance, while they are alive, and that is a life-saving donation sometimes, and certainly it's not only permissible, but actually a, a good deed to do. The same holds true for bone marrow, and almost the same holds true for one of the two kidneys, provided the live donor is healthy, he can live very well with one kidney, and someone who has no kidneys, who is going to die, will live uh, with the one kidney that we donate. But the major organs, such as heart, lung, uh, pancreas, liver, usually can come only from a dead person because it will kill the donor if he is alive. 
And here, I think, is important to stress the following. Everyone agrees that if the person is dead, it is a good deed to give any organ in his body that is still alive that can save others' life. Indeed, there are all kinds of prohibitions involved in dissecting the dead body in order to get out the organs. We're not allowed to desecrate the dead body. We are obligated to bury every part of the body and many other issues, but all are set aside because of pikuach nefesh. We are allowed to desecrate Shabbos. We are allowed to eat on Yom Kippur. We certainly are allowed to violate the desecration of the body or or, uh, postpone some uh, issues of burial if it is in order to save another's life. So that is a non-issue from a halachic point of view. The only issue from a halachic point of view is when is the person dead? And if we agree about the moment of death, we can decide if and when and what organs can be obtained from a donor to someone who is in need. And there are two ways to diagnose uh, the moment of death. One is (coughs) a cardiac death, the classic way, when both respiration and heart function stop. That is accepted by everyone that the person is dead. However, at this stage, very few organs are still viable that can be obtained in order to save someone else's life. Obviously, the heart stopped, so the heart cannot be taken. The same holds true for the liver, for the lungs. The kidneys have a wider window, and sometimes we can take the kidneys even after the heart stopped and and obtain them to save someone's life. On the other hand, there is a new defini- relatively new definition, which is called brain death definition, and that goes according to the principle that halachically, it's not the brain that counts, it is the respiration that counts, and there are uh, verses in Tanakh, and certainly a whole sugya in, in Gemore, that speaks about the fact that if respiration stops irreversibly, the person is regarded as dead for any uh, purpose, and once we can establish these two facts, that A, he's not breathing, and B, it's irreversible. The other organs are still viable because such a person is usually, not usually, is always on a respirator, and therefore he gets supply of oxygen, and therefore the heart can function, and the heart supplies blood, and therefore the liver can function, and then we can obtain all these organs. That is a disputable issue, and the dispute is only on this point. How do you define the moment of death? If you agree on the definition, everyone agrees that you should be a candidate to donate your organs. It is beyond the time and the scope to discuss the pros and cons of each of the definitions, but that is the issue, and if we can solve it, we can save many lives. Dr. Steinberg, thank you so, so much for this amazing and enlightening discussion. Uh, you know, there's so many more questions I would love to pose, and I'm sure we could go on for another hour, hour or two, but uh, it is uh, it is a Shabbos, and uh, we all have our own Shabbos to prepare, so I just want to take the opportunity of, of thanking uh, the Rav for making himself available. I want to thank the, the Chief Rabbi's office for facilitating Rabbi Dr. Steinberg's trip to, to South Africa and those who are organizing the tour to uh, make him available to to speak to all of us here on on, on High FM, 
And uh, just again, as always, thank you to all of our listeners for being part of the show, for, for your messages, for, for your input. And look forward, Be'ez Hashem, to being with you uh, next week, Be'ez Hashem, at the same, at the same, at the same time. And we'll just close, as we always do, by wishing each and every one of you a, a beautiful Shabbos, a Shabbos of Menucha, a Shabbos of inspiration, a Shabbos of real opportunity to be with your families, to be in your shul, to be inspired, to learn some Torah, and Be'ez Hashem, to get yourself the, the energy and, and the Koyach to carry on for Be'ez Hashem, another, another beautiful, another beautiful week. Thank you for listening, and Shabbos Shalom.